0: We are starting in Genesis chapter 2, reading from verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first, Pishon, it flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold, that, the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Then the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought it to her. I'm sorry, brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So this is, this is, uh, um, What we see here are parts of the Edenic Covenant. There were eight covenants that were given to people. This is part of the Edenic Covenant, the covenant that comes in the Garden of Eden or in this area of of Eden. It encompasses some of what's in the end of chapter 1 and also chapter 2 and chapter 3. The Edenic Covenant says to man, you've got to replenish the earth, subdue it for human use, dominion over the animals, eat herbs and fruit, till and keep a garden, abstain from eating of the tree of the good and evil, and the penalty for disobeying that last one is death. That was the Edenic covenant. That is one of eight covenants to humankind. Uh, that one was given in the Garden of Eden. The next one's going to be in Genesis 3-5, which is the Edenic Adamic, Adamic covenant. But we'll, we'll we'll look at that later. As you read in this, you will see in verse 4, that it says, "This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made heaven and earth." This is the first example of the Lord God. Prior to that, it always said God did this, God said, God, God did. But now it says Lord God. That Lord is sometimes translated Jehovah. That is Yahweh. That is his his uh, uh, personal name. That is the name of God. It means self. Uh, existent one, Jehovah, it's often translated the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. That's what that Lord in many of our Bibles and all in small caps uh, uh, speaks about. So it's saying Jehovah or Yahweh and then God. God, th- this, this word God, El or Elah is God or Elohim. The particular word here is Elohim. It is a plural, a composite plural. So in in Hebrew, composite plural. For example, the word for for if you have one spoon, a spoon is is yahid, which is just one. A table is made up of a platform and four legs. That is echad. That is the composite one. It is one table, but it's made up of those five parts. And so so uh um, this word echad is often the word, not exclusively, but often the word used. When it says God is one, if you look at the Shema, which is this Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The word it uses there is chad, the composite one. It doesn't suggest Trinity. It just suggests that it's a composite one, and it fits very well into the Christian's view of the Trinity. It does not use the word Yahid once in a while. The Hebrew Scriptures will use the word Yahid for God, but rarely. It's mostly Echad. And this word Elohim is the plural. It's a plural form of the singular. Now some people will talk about this and they'll say, Hey, you know, this sounds like two creation stories. You have the creation story in chapter 1, and now you have a different creation story in chapter 2. And what happens is, is that those who love the Word of God just try to pack chapter 2 into chapter 1. And they say chapter two is just giving more detail about what happened in chapter one. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily wrong, but it's not, it's not the totality of the story. And then scholars that care little for the veracity of the word of God will often say that these are two totally separate stories that were written at two separate times by two separate people or two separate groups, and then some compiler just stuck them together and tried to make them look like one. Well, if that compiler tried to stick two stories together, he or she did not do a very good job, all right? Now, let's establish up front, every word in this book is true, absolutely every word. If you ever leave that high ground, you will lose your power, you will lose your power over being able to bring people to the Lord. You will lose your power. Every word in this book is true. Sometimes it appears as not being, all, all, how could it all be true? Because you say, this contradicts this, this contradicts that. And people will say to me, well, the word of God contradicts, the Bible contradicts itself all the time. I'll say, oh, it does it? Show me three examples. They say, what well, it's all over. It contradicts itself. I say, okay, show me three examples. And then they usually say nothing. All right, so it's very easy to say it contradicts itself. And sometimes you see people in their naivete will speak about this book as, full, as if it's full of contradictions. It is not. It is only because we do not understand it sometimes that it will look like there's controversies. But then you look at people, you, you study the books that have studied this, and it all comes together. Every word in the Bible is true. Every word is true. And we walk by this word. If this word isn't true, if this word is full of errors, if this word's got mistakes, just get rid of it. It's not worth following this. what's written here. This word is divine. God has spoken these words. It was penned by human beings. God directing it. And God says, you can't change this word. You try to change it, it's gonna. you're going to die. I mean, God protects this book. Long after you and I are gone, long after the critics are dead, this book will remain. So we have to establish that up front. Lots of times, people who are naive and don't understand a particular subject will say there's errors. I'll give you an example. So, so we wrote we wrote a paper and it was published because the reviewers understand chemistry and and it was published. Now there's some attack on that paper in the internet by people who don't understand the difference between an alkene, a carbon-carbon double bond, and an a, a diarial. Azine, where, where you have, where you have a, a, a double bond between two nitrogen atoms. And so they'll say, Tours' little nanomachine never could work. It doesn't make any sense because they don't understand the stereoisomeric difference between those, how they isomerize. So it's a concept that's above the novice, the, 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 the person who's a novice. And so they think it's wrong. It is not wrong. So there's these pages on the Internet written about how it's so wrong, but it's only written by people who don't understand how this molecular machine could work. It's the same thing that happens with the Word of God. I've sat with students and the student will say, well, you know, I think, you know, the Bible messes it up here in, in certain things and people don't get it. And I said, oh, really? You just thought of that? That's amazing. This book that has been more studied than any book in the world, you all of a sudden found this big glaring mistake that nobody ever caught before. You are, you are brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. This book is true. Alright, so we established this book is true. But it is not two separate and distinct stories. They have two, it's looking at two different aspects. Chapter one is looking at the physical or cosmological setting there of man. Chapter two and three is looking at the moral side of man. And God knew exactly what he was doing by stitching these together. He talks about us in this physical world. And then he talks about us as moral human beings. Let me give you an example. I can walk around. My health, thank God, is very good. And I can walk around and everything is working on me. I can get up. I can walk around and and everything looks good. All the mechanical part is working. But in my mind, I can be terribly depressed. I can have very low self-esteem. I can walk around and think, you know, this world would be better off without me. In fact, if I died, the world would probably be better off. And you'd, you'd look at me and you'd think that, hey, you know, physically you're very good. Everything is working. But you don't know that in my mind I'm going through all these sorts of struggles. This is human nature. This is people are a composite of this, of what's going on in our mind which is very different than what's going on in the physical parts of our body. That's what this is like. He has taken chapter one and he has placed man and he showed us how man was put there. In chapters two and three, he's now dealing at the moral side of man. What's going on in my head? What's going on? We use it. We use it metaphorically in my heart. This is what he's dealing with here. So for example, if you look at the differences between chapter 1 and chapter 2, let me read you some of of these. The first creation story focuses on heaven and earth, on the entire cosmos. The second focuses on human beings in their terrestrial situation. In the first, the, uh, the cosmic beings are watery and amorphous. In the second, it is earthly and dry. The first story ends with man. The second story begins with him. In the first, the animals come first and man is to be their ruler. In the second, the beast comes after and man's poss- as man's possible companions. In the first, man is to be master of life on earth. That's in 128. In the second, he is to be servant of the earth. Two verses five and verses 15. In the first, male and female are created together. In the second, they are created sequentially. Male first. Or, alternatively, the first human being may even look androgynous. In the first story, man is made directly in the image of God. That's verse 122. In the second, he is made of earthly dust and divine breath. That's 2-7. And becomes godlike only at the end. Quote, now the man has become like one of us. Unquote. In verse three twenty-two, And that's only in transgression. In the first, things are said to be good. In the second, there is a tree of knowledge of good and bad, or good and evil. Nothing is said to be good. And the one thing, man's aloneness, aloneness, is said by God to be not good. In the first story, God's name is Elohim. In the second, Yahweh Elohim. In the first, plants are given to living things for food. In the second, man is to serve and keep the plants. That's in 2.15. But the fruit of the trees are given for food in 2.16. In the first, in need of encouragement, man is given positive injunctions for procreation and dominion in 1.28. And in the second, in need of restraint, he's given negative commandments in 2.17. In in. In the first, God names and blesses. In the second, man names, but God curses. In the first, God's story of blessing concerning reproduction, and only later, and their remarks about food, but are positive, but these are now positive. In the second story, food comes before sex and reproduction, and each is tinged with ambiguity and sorrow. For there, there is the first generous remark about eating, but with one restriction, followed by emergence of sexuality, first without shame, later with shame. So you have all these differences between the first and the second account. But this is what it's like in the second account. It's how human life got so difficult. In the second part, we learn about how human life got so difficult. We learn nothing of morality in the first part. You learn nothing of adultery. You learn nothing of, of sin, nothing of evil. You learn nothing of, of of uh, man's inhumanity to man in that first part. In the second part, you also learn why human life is, is always so difficult. Why is it that humans struggle with this? You know, I'm just not a good person. Why is it that we struggle with this? This is what's revealed to us in chapters two and three. We identify the source of our moral human dilemmas and much of our unhappiness. But what always happens under like conditions... What happens under the like conditions? This is what happens to all of us. To impart, uh, uh, this is, this imparts something to our soul. That's what this whole thing is about. So everything changes in chapter two. It is not a different story. He's just talking about the morality part. God is smarter than us. He's packed these things to, together and he looks at us as these composite human beings where we have the physical part and we have this moral part. One part is historical, another part is moral. One part's physical, another part is moral, and so that's what he's getting at in this in in the in this section. And so, what we see in chapter one is God, not nature, is divine. God is divine, not nature, not the sun, which he never even gives the sun a name. People love to worship the sun. He, he just said the, the the greater light in the sky. He didn't even want to give it a name. He didn't even have it come until day four because he he knows how people love to focus on it. And he called the moon a lesser light. Didn't even give them names. God, not nature, is divine. In the second part, in the second story, obedience to God, not independent rational pursuit of wisdom, is the true and right human way. All right? That's what we're going to learn in this, in this second part. So let let's, uh, let's let's look at this and we'll start seeing where everything is going to collapse for human beings. We'll see all of this collapse going on. So, chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heavens and earth. Now, no shrub of the field was in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. He may well be speaking about the Garden of Eden here, rather than the earth at large, because he's focusing in on Eden. Man was created in Eden on the west side of Eden, and then God then prepared a garden for man on the east side of Eden and placed him in that garden on the east side of Eden. There was no rain. It said a mist would rise up and water the earth. That might be the account for why people lived so long. There's a theory that there was some sort of UV shield over the earth. That protected the earth. There was no rain and 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 just a mist would rise up, sort of like one of those those internal gardens in a in a fish tank. And and uh, uh that, that a mist would just rise up and, and water the earth. And then when the UV shield went away, that's when the lifespan started getting shorter. Or uh more recently, what it's looking like is this is normal entropy going on. So you have a New entity, new human beings, and then all of a sudden there's a very sharp and dramatic decline in the lifespan, and then it just levels off. And that we are in this leveled-off portion, so our lifespans haven't changed much in a long time. So even if you read the writings of Moses, even if you read the writings of Moses in in uh, in Psalm 90, Moses wrote Psalm 90, and it says that 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 man lives 70 years, if due to strength 80. So remember that's 1400 years, 1400 BC. So 3,400, 3,500 years ago, the lifespan was 70 years. If due to strength 80, that's like about where we are now. It's no different than where we are now. Now we might have a little bit, you know, calmer life, like because, you know, we can take care of cataracts and we can, we have all these painkillers, but still the lifespan has remained the same. And we're on this tail part of a normal entropic decrease. And you say, no, bodies are getting better. We're evolving better. No, actually, that might not be the case. It might be normal entropy taking place, normal decay curve, and, and, and we're in the, in this, this period. So, in verse seven, then God, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So all of a sudden we see God took a huge role. We had seen up in, in chapter 1 where God said three times He created man, He created him in His image, He created them male and female. Three times He used the word created in chapter 1 for mankind. And when I say man, remember that word man in Genesis chapter 1 and also in Genesis chapter 2 until we get to the end of chapter 2 means man or woman. Man, which is translated it is in Hebrew is the word Adam, means like anthropos. It just means mankind, humankind. It doesn't mean male or female. That is actually the word, but he does specify them in, in chapter 1 that he's going to create them in two genders, male and female, but all the other references to man are like, like, like the word that, that uh, we often use, anthropos. You see that God breathed life into him. You don't see this with the animals. God has shared this, this sort of life with him. It says, out of the ground, God caused, verse 8, then the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. God planted, it says, the garden. God planted the garden toward the east in Eden. So Eden is a big area. Man was on the west side. That's where he created him. Now God plants a garden. Who planted the garden? God planted a garden. God takes man and places man into the garden. And again he says this he says this again in, uh, in in verse 15 then the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden. So twice he stresses to us that it is God who took man specifically and placed him in that garden. So much of what we have, we think we built, but God has done so much of it. I walk into my office to this day, I, I love my office. I mean, it just, just, and I look at this and I say, thank you God for my office. Thank you for the furniture that's here. Thank you for what you've given me. It's better than most professor's offices I've ever seen. And, and God has just, just really blessed me and I'm thankful for it. God took me and placed me in that office. God was so good to me. If you look at your life, there is so much to be thankful for. You may say, well, I worked for this. Okay, you worked for it. But in large part, God had something to do with this. God made the way for you to get there. If you have a job, thank God for it. I'll tell you, one day you might not have a job and you will wow, it really was nice when I had a job. You have a home, thank God for it. God never promises us a job. He never promises us a house. Remember, it says of Jesus, the son of man has the foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He never promises us a house. All he promises us in the New Testament is it says, if you have food and clothing with that, you shall be content. All he promises us as believers is food and clothing. If you've got beyond food and clothing of anything in your life, that's an added blessing. You look at life in that way, it will set your life differently. You may say, well, you know, there's things about my job I don't like. Yeah, but it's better than having no job at all. God is the one who set him in that garden. And it says, and the Lord God planted a garden toward the east. So in other words, it wasn't like he said, boom, garden be there. No, it says God planted a garden. God planted it. You know, this is where, this is where the people that are, remember I said I've not taken any position on whether these are 24 hour days or long periods of time because I want you to believe whatever you've come in believing, you go out believing. I don't want to change you. I'm not trying to make you into little gym tours. Not at all. You believe what you want to believe on this. But it, it says, it says God planted a garden. So for those that feel that these are long periods of time, they look at verses like this and say, you see, God planted it as if there's time for growth. Something is happening and growing. Or did God plant a seed and say, grow and (powtoom) big full tree? Maybe He did. But you can see where the people are coming from when they say that these are long periods of time. God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every green, every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. He caused it to grow. In other words, it didn't just magically appear. He caused it to grow. Now maybe he caused it to grow in a single 24 hour day. Maybe he did. You know, he's, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Adam was formed. It appears as a Full grown adult. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like Adam was a baby and, you know, and, and for the first few years God was changing his diapers and we, we don't see that. So God is able to make things in full grown form. People say, well, you know, you got the universe and how could the, how, how, how could the, the universe be, you know, a young universe when there's stars that are, you know, billions of light years away. We shouldn't be seeing them unless it's a billion years. And then the argument from the other side is God can make it appear. He made it in a full form. You see what I mean? God can do that. He certainly did it with Adam. So you see the two different views on this. So I can see both the young earth creationists and the old earth creationists. I can see where they get their points. I just wish they'd calm down and not argue with each other. Out of the ground, the Lord caused in verse 9, to grow every green tree that is pleasing to the sight, And good for food. So everything that is pleasing to the sight and good for food he caused to grow. This is a nice garden. I mean, there there were no bad trees there. No ugly trees. There wasn't a bunch of tumbleweed there. You know, everything that was good for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some... Scholars translate that not the tree of good and evil, but the tree of good and bad because good does not have any moral it's not exclusively for moral things so like uh uh boy, this is a good piece of bread doesn't mean that the bread is morally good just means it tastes good right but if you say if you, if if you say uh that's a good child that usually means that Oh, it's not talking about the physical part of the child. It's saying the child is morally good. He's a good child. He's respectful. He's kind. He's giving. Whereas evil gives only the connotation of something moral. So in other words, sickness is not evil. Sickness is bad, but it's not evil. And so that's why they say it is really should be good and bad, the tree of good and bad, because bad can constitute sickness. Whereas, where so so it encompasses uh, uh, both things that you know a thorn that can that, that can stick your finger in, and it can be something that that's morally uh, uh, bad. Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. The bedillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river, Gehon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river, Tigris, and it flows east to Assyria, and the fourth river, Euphrates. We only can identify two of those rivers. Tigris and Euphrates exist today. They do cross, by the way. We don't know about those other two rivers. And presume that the flood, the flood of Noah, Scrambled lots of rivers. We don't know about those other two. The naming here in Genesis chapters one through 11, everything makes sense as this being Hebrew. All the names have Hebrew meanings. After God scrambled the languages at the Tower of Babel in Hebrews chapter 11, all of a sudden, then you start seeing names that make no Hebrew sense. They start having other names so that the word that, that uh, Adam is speaking Hebrew makes perfect sense. All the names that he uses make Hebrew sense. It's not until God scrambles the languages in Genesis chapter 11 that all of a sudden we get names that don't apply. There's no Hebrew translation of what that name particularly means. And so there's these two rivers, but it talks about there was gold. Gold of the land was good. Now, where does gold come from? Just so that you understand, scientists believe that the Earth got filled with all these great elements that we have through a through bombardment of asteroids. So you can see the effect of asteroids on the Moon. So if you look at the Moon, what do you see? You see these huge craters. Well, how did a crater form? Obviously, a crater forms when an asteroid hits something. Boom, there's this impact and it leaves a crater. The same asteroids that hit the Moon... Must have hit the Earth as well, but because our mass is six times the size, six times larger than that of the Moon, we had six times more asteroids hitting Earth. This is why the crust of the Earth is filled with a diverse array of elements. I mean, just filled with all these different elements. And, and that you don't see on many other planets. Earth is filled with this, and we don't see craters that much on Earth. Once in a while, you, there are places where there are craters. But because we have an environment, we have, a, we have weather patterns that, that smooth these things over. The moon doesn't. You can see the effects of this on the moon. That may indeed have happened in Genesis chapter 2 when there was that void period, formless and void. And we talked about that, that, that destruction of things. <clears throat> and this bedillium. Bedillium is a, is, a, is a mixture of three terpenes. Terpenes are, are of organic origin. Terpenes are small molecules. They're they're the fragrant molecules that you know you, you you walk into a perfume shop. That is all terpenes. It's five carbon compounds that are put together where you can have diterpenes, triterpenes, sesquiterpenes, and you can and these are the things that give us our, our, our good aromas, all, all the musks, those are all terpenes. That's what bedyllium is. It's a mixture of terpenes It comes from organic matter. Well, where did this organic stuff come from? Usually so so comes from uh trees, it's a sap from tree. Well, if bdellium is there, how long were those trees there? Did they all of a sudden start exuding bdellium, Or had it been there for some time? So if you're a young earth creationist, you just have to say, okay, I see how an old earth creationist might think that these things grow. There's time for sap to leak out and you have bdellium." You see what I mean? These are, these are interesting things to think about. Then it names the rivers. And then it says, God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it. And the Lord God commanded. This is the first command. Now the Lord God said in verse 28 of chapter 1, He says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So that is a command, be fruitful and multiply. But this is the first time that the word command is used. Before He gave them instruction... He gave them commands, but he did not put it in the terms of command. Here he puts it in the terms of a command. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. God doesn't waste commands. He doesn't have to command us on things that we normally have no trouble with. God never commands us in the Bible to breathe. Never commands us to breathe. Now, it's a good thing to breathe. You don't breathe, you're in trouble. But He doesn't command us to breathe. So He doesn't waste commands. Interestingly, He does not command a mother to love her children. Because it is so natural, He has put that within a mother to love her children. When a mother doesn't love her children, and there are a few of those mothers, that's a disorder. And we say the woman is psychologically messed up. There's a disorder there when a mother doesn't love her child. There's some people that don't naturally breathe, and so they have to be put on machines. So so we, we recognize that as a disorder. God doesn't give us commands on things that we don't have trouble with. He gives us commands on things that we have trouble with. Remember in chapter 1, we learn nothing of morality. What is right, what is wrong. All of a sudden, he starts giving us moral direction. We learned nothing in chapter 1 that adultery is wrong. We learn nothing about that. Think of Adam. Where does he get this thing from? How does Adam understand any of this? You know, how how does Adam understand this prototypical human? He had no instruction. You know, what's he like? He's some sort of simple being, simple life. You know, he's, he's upright, he's naked, he's hairless, but in mind, he's more childlike or animal-like than godlike. He's ignorant in the sense that, you know, what kind of instruction does he have? He doesn't, hasn't been instructed yet. He's speechless. He hasn't yet spoken. We haven't heard a word from him yet. We're about to hear that, but he's also innocent. He's had no human passions with which to identify him. No shame. He's got no shame. He's naked and unashamed. There's no shame. The things that we struggle with, with, there's no guilt. Never did anything wrong. There's no guilt. There's no pride. There's no anger. No malice. No vanity. No wonder. No awe. None of that is there. It's likely he had no fear of death. He's never seen death. So Adam has no fear of death. He doesn't know what this is. Nor has he had any erotic desire. He's he's different from us in many ways. All he needs is food and drink and repose. There's no feeling of opposition from without or within. There's no struggles there. No self-division. Possibly not even self-consciousness. We don't know. He lives here and now in a world of peace, ease, and satisfaction of basic needs. He's had no instruction. He doesn't know. Oh, now God is beginning to instruct him. So you see in many ways he's really quite childlike. Even though he's a man, he's quite childlike. He just doesn't know. He has to start being instructed. And God gives him a command. And the command starts out so good. He says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. That is an abundance that is an abundance. There is no shortage of, of food for human beings, except that shortage that comes because of human deception and ill will. The Earth is far more abundant than we can imagine. The United States can make all the food for everyone in the world if we wanted to. easily, easily. We pay farmers not to produce so much. It's crazy. You go to certain parts of the world, certain parts of Africa. It is not for a lack of food. There were African nations that were making food for the entire continent. And then there was mismanagement and bad government and it shut the whole thing down. And then lots of people starve. It's only because of mismanagement. It's only because of human sin that people starve. The earth, there's plenty here. And this is exactly what he says to him. He says, in this garden, you can eat freely anything you want. It's a command. God commanded him, eat freely. He says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. 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 What does that mean? There'd never been death. These are the things that Adam's got to think about here. What does die mean? it certainly doesn't mean the same thing that we look at it. What we're going to learn is that's an eternal separation from God. You're not going to have the same relationship with Yahweh anymore. That's that eternal separation, because when He does sin, He doesn't die physically right away. So it's a spiritual sort of death. The same thing that you and me struggle with. The same thing that human beings struggle with. So let me bring it back to us. We struggle with the same thing. And that's why, let me let me close with a couple of verses from the New Testament. John chapter 3, verse 18. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in Him, that's Jesus, is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The whole moral character of human beings is that we sin. We are unable not to sin. For Adam, he was able not to sin or he was able to commit sin. For us, we are unable not to sin. And if we don't believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been judged already. People say, well, how do you know you're going to go to hell? Because it says right here, if you don't believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're judged already. The, the, the King James says you are condemned already if you don't believe on the name of the Son of God. Look in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Reading from verse... Uh, uh, Acts chapter 16. We're going to read from verse 30. Sirs, what must they do to be saved? They said, "...believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household." What do I have to do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is what it reduces to. It reduces to belief on Jesus Christ. He calls us to believe. He calls us to believe on Him. You are unable not to sin. Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 7, the very thing that I want to do, I end up not doing. And that's the story of my life. I'm just telling personally, that's the story of my life. The very thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the very thing that I want to do, I end up not doing. That's the struggle that we have within us. Then he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of sin and death? Paul cries out. He says, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is deliverance in Jesus Christ because of Him. Because of Him. Everything comes back to Jesus. I urge you this day, believe on Him. If you've not made a commitment to Him... This is the day. Let it happen today. Don't let this day pass by. Make a commitment to Him this day. We are going to see in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 what always happens under like conditions. How people not just fell back then, how they always fall when they walk in disobedience to God and in their own wisdom, they're going to figure this thing out. That's the whole meaning behind Genesis chapter 2 and 3. To show us that it is not by worldly wisdom that we figure this thing out. It is by obedience to God that we are saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. You are so good. And I pray, O Lord, first of all, for the unbelievers who are here, people who are here who have never accepted Jesus in their hearts. Father, I pray that they would pray this day, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner. I believe in Jesus. I believe in His resurrection. I believe in His Lordship. Lord, forgive me. And Lord, I pray that You would take them and You would bring them into a place where they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That simple. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and You will be saved. Father, I pray for their salvation this day. And Lord, I pray for the believers here that they would take the Word of God and believe every word in it because it is true. And if there's something that doesn't make sense to them, it's only because they're beginners at it. Father, that they would learn to read and understand Your Word and understand that every word is true. Father, I pray for these young people that they take hold of Your Word and love Your Word. And Father, I commit them to You in this time in the name of Jesus. Amen.